You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. As I record these words, Coke Industries is the second largest privately held company in America, with annual revenues over $100 billion. If you glance at their Wikipedia page, you'll see that the list of products they make is a collection of vague categories, like chemicals, minerals, and fibers. It's a series of almost meaningless words that does almost nothing to illustrate how pervasive this one family's influence is on our world. The Cokes and their ilk have worked tirelessly to shape our laws in such a way that they end up sacrificing the well-being of the masses in the name of preserving the interests of a very rich few. A far more concrete example can be found in the opening pages of the book Dark Money by investigative journalist Jane Mayer. She describes a scene at the inauguration of former President Barack Obama. The president-elect is giving a rousing speech about his goals of rooting out the corruption and influence peddling of rich families like the Kochs. But unbeknownst to him, as he gives this speech, he's standing on a carpet purchased as part of a government contract from a company called Invista, which is a subsidiary of Coke Industries. The Coke Empire was launched in the late 1920s by a man named Fred Koch. These days, when journalists like Jane Mayer invoke the phrase, the Koch brothers, they're usually talking about two of Fred's sons, Charles and David. Charles Koch is the current chairman and CEO of Koch Industries. David Koch's name appears on buildings at venerable New York institutions, like Lincoln Center and Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and David was the libertarian candidate for vice president back in 1980. Their eldest brother, Freddie, generally kept a lower public profile than that of his younger siblings. Until one day, back in 2013, Freddie invited a journalist named Daniel Shulman into his 13,000-square-foot townhouse at 6 East 80th Street in Manhattan. At the time, Freddie hadn't spoken to the media in 25 years, and yet here he was, showing Daniel Shulman around his house, which is valued in today's money at over $24 million. It's made of white marble and has seven floors, which Freddie has filled with classical sculptures dating back to 130 AD and cultural artifacts, ranging from J.P. Morgan's old dining room chairs to a canopy bed that once belonged to Marie Antoinette. Not that Freddie sleeps in that bed. In fact, Freddie doesn't even live at 6 East 80th Street. He bought this townhouse as a personal museum for his ever-expanding collection of antiquities. It's a complement to his other residences, which include another multi-million dollar townhouse on the Upper East Side and a hunting lodge in Austria that was once owned by Archduke Franz Ferdinand. But I have to imagine that for Freddie's guest that day, the journalist Daniel Schulman, this staggering display of wealth is somehow less surreal than what happens next. Which is that Freddie who's been seemingly warm and welcoming up to this point, abruptly changes his tune when they sit down for the second part of the interview, the part where Shulman plans to ask Freddie about his family. Describing the moment in Vanity Fair, Shulman writes that before he can ask a question, Freddie produces a clear plastic envelope, removes a document, and asks for Shulman's signature. The document is a contract, which would entitle Freddie Koch to approval of, quote, all writing pertaining to Frederick R. Koch 
including personal subject matter revealed in research and interviews. Shulman explains to Freddie that he can't possibly sign this contract, that it would undercut the integrity of his reporting. And with that, Freddie Koch escorts Daniel Shulman out of his white marble townhouse. Daniel Shulman's story left me wondering, if Freddie wasn't willing to share anything after that moment, what had he unwittingly revealed during the grand tour that led up to it? Or put more simply, what was Freddie trying to protect? I got interested in Freddie Koch because of this one scene in the finale of the third season of the HBO series Succession. In that episode, the children of media tycoon Logan Roy travel to Tuscany for a wedding. Before the ceremony, they all gather around a table on a rooftop terrace overlooking a vast valley full of olive trees. The meeting has been called by three of the siblings, Shiv, Roman, and Connor, and it's intended as an intervention for the fourth Roy sibling, Kendall. A few days before the wedding, Kendall nearly drowned in a swimming pool, an incident his siblings believe was an attempted suicide, brought on by Kendall's shame over his failed attempt to stage a hostile takeover of the family's media conglomerate. Ironically, Kendall's coup was thwarted in part by two of the people seated at the table with him, his brother Roman and his sister Shiv, who've been working with their father to sabotage Kendall by arranging a high-stakes merger between the Roy's media empire and a prestigious tech company. Meanwhile, no one has mentioned any of this to the fourth sibling, Logan Roy's eldest son, Connor. But for the moment, none of that is supposed to matter. The goal of this summit, set against a backdrop of interlaced vines and weathered terracotta, is to put the family's internecine conflicts aside, to remind Kendall that in spite of everything that's happened, his family still loves him. And at first, it's going okay. But as Kendall sits there, bemoaning the loss of what he considers his birthright, Connor's long-simmering resentments begin to boil. He slowly traces a butter knife across the tablecloth until finally he can't take it anymore. I am the eldest son, and no one told me about this fucking merger of fucking equals and what if I want to take over because I am the eldest son. All right. Easy, Con. I'm the eldest son. I'm the eldest son. And I must be considered and I need to be taken into account. Con, we're we're talking about what I actually lost. Shut up. You're hurt? I didn't see Pop for three years. But your spoon wasn't shiny enough. Huh? It is not all about you. I haven't been able to stop thinking about this scene. For one thing... It's one of the only moments in Succession where a character says what they're actually feeling instead of concealing their emotions behind a veil of sarcasm. It's also one of the only times we hear any of the Roy children express self-awareness about the family's unimaginable wealth. Your spoon, Connor marvels, wasn't shiny enough. But I think the moment sticks with me for a deeper reason. It feeds my desire for a redemption narrative. For three seasons now, I've watched the Roys viciously slander and stab each other in the back without a care for the collateral damage to society brought about by their pettiness and greed. And I've realized that as I sit on my couch, devouring hour after hour of the family's operatic cruelty, I'm constantly making excuses for them in my head. 
They don't want to act this way, I tell myself. It's how anyone in their situation would be forced to behave in order to survive. They can't help it. Connor's outburst reverberated with me because it validated my hope that someone in the family might finally cry out for mercy to remind the others that life doesn't have to be a ruthless game, that they're a family and not just animated pieces on a gilded chessboard. But if I'm being honest, there's another reason I like to immerse myself in the fictional slings and arrows of House Roy, which is that it's far more pleasurable than reckoning with the implications of the dramas in actual families like the Roy's, families like the Cokes. When I first read Dark Money, Jane Mayer's book about the Koch family, I was horrified. I came away from it considering the Kochs to be irredeemably evil, a virulent symptom of deep malignancy in the American political system. But after the season finale of Succession, I found myself confronted with an uncomfortable question. Why do I love the Roys and hate the Kochs? From WALTFM and PRX, you're listening to Family Ghosts. And today on the show, I go in search of my Coke redemption narrative in the form of the curious history of Freddy, the eldest son, the Coke family ghost who spent his adult life haunting a townhouse full of secrets. Our story begins right after the break. If the Koch family has an original sin, I think it occurred in 1934. That's the year that Fred Koch, Freddy's father, helped Adolf Hitler build an oil refinery. Fred Koch was already a wealthy man by 1934. Years earlier, he'd come up with an improvement on existing methods for converting crude oil into gasoline. In Fred's telling, this discovery spooked the major oil companies, who considered him a threat to their dominance of the market. Fred believed that they conspired to shut him out of the industry. And whether or not he was right about their intentions, the oil companies did sue Fred for patent infringement. So perhaps owing to this unwelcome business climate, Fred began offering his methods for sale to overseas buyers. He helped Great Britain build an oil refinery in 1931 and then partnered with Joseph Stalin to build a series of them in Russia in the early 30s. Now, if we're going to throw around the phrase original sin in regards to Fred Koch's business dealings, some might argue that it should apply to Fred's collaboration with Stalin's regime. But in his defense, Jane Mayer writes that Fred later expressed remorse about that partnership. So by that standard, it's Fred's next adventure for which the phrase seems more apt. Because in 1934, Fred was hired by known Nazi sympathizer William Rhodes Davis to help the Third Reich generate fuel for its burgeoning military. Davis hired Koch to oversee the construction and operation of what would become the third largest oil refinery in Germany, a facility that had the particular capability of generating fuel for fighter planes, which the Nazi Air Force would go on to use to devastating effect in combat. And far from misgivings of the kind he harbored about his Soviet affiliations, Fred Koch's work in Germany seems to have underscored his nascent fascist sympathies. According to a letter 
he wrote to a friend in the late 30s, quote, The only sound countries in the world are Germany, Italy, and Japan. When you contrast the state of mind of Germany today with what it was in 1925, you begin to think that perhaps this course of idleness, feeding at the public trough, dependence on government, etc., with which we are afflicted, is not permanent and can be overcome. Whatever his sentiments about Nazism in particular, they didn't stop Fred from accepting a contract from the U.S. government just a few years later to refine oil for the American military, which resulted in the bombing of the very refinery he'd helped Hitler build. In doing so, Fred Koch made clear his true allegiance to the almighty dollar. Back home in Wichita, Kansas, his son Freddie would have been about eight years old at the time this all happened. And while Fred's business dealings were surely far beyond Freddie's understanding, his father's attitudes were reinforced in other ways. Fred was gone for months at a time and accordingly hired a nanny to look after Freddie and his younger brother Charles. The nanny was German and, like Fred's patron, William Rhodes Davis, a fervent supporter of the Third Reich. In Dark Money, Jane Mayer quotes a Koch family friend who says the nanny subjected Fred's sons to readings from a German children's book called Der Struvelpeter, in which misbehaving children are punished with dismemberment and death. According to the same source, the Nazi nanny also, quote, enforced a rigid toilet training regimen, requiring the boys to produce morning bowel movements precisely on schedule or be force-fed castor oil and subjected to enemas. All of which helps explain what seems to have been a pivotal incident in Freddie's youth. By the time Freddie was a teenager, a clear dynamic had emerged amongst the siblings, a group which now included Freddie, Charles, and a set of younger twins, David and William. Charles responded to their father's spirit of ruthlessness by cultivating a domineering attitude of his own, asserting himself as the leader of the four children, openly declaring his preference for David over his twin brother William, and frequently picking fights with Freddie. Freddie, on the other hand, chose the opposite path, often retreating from his brothers to spend time reading alone in his bedroom or lost in conversation with their artistically inclined mother, Mary. While we can't know what Freddie and Mary discussed, I like to imagine that she told him stories about her youthful dreams of becoming a painter or what was on the most recent program at the Wichita Symphony, of which she was an ardent supporter, or perhaps showing Freddie her most recent project from the silversmithing classes she took at the Wichita Art Association. Fred Sr., meanwhile, diversified his oil refinery business into a variety of manufacturing and agricultural concerns and was pulling in hundreds of millions of dollars a year. As his net worth grew increasingly stratospheric, he began to entertain initial thoughts of succession. According to Charles in a 1997 interview with Fortune magazine, Fred Sr. was fearful that his sons would grow up to become, quote, country club bums, and ordered them to put in long summer hours on the family's cattle ranch. From this, Freddie, according to his brother William, retreated as usual. Instead of bailing hay, William told the New York Times, Freddie would hide in the hayloft. But Freddie couldn't hide forever. And in 1946, something happened that permanently altered the course of his life. One of the most fascinating documents unearthed by Jane Mayer in Dark Money is an unpublished Koch family history by a professor named Clayton Coppin, 
who was hired by the Koch family to write it and then mysteriously laid off. He later shared his manuscript with Mayer, and it describes a nervous breakdown suffered by Freddie in 1946 while working on the cattle ranch. Freddie later denied the nervous breakdown to Daniel Shulman during the townhouse tour. But Professor Coppin quotes another family friend who says that after the breakdown, the Koch family contacted a family psychologist. Fred Sr. had come to believe that Freddie was gay, and the psychologist recommended separating Freddie from his mother. As a result, Freddie was sent away to boarding school in New York. After Freddie left home, his father's grip on the family's incipient manufacturing empire grew tighter. In the late 50s, Fred Sr.'s regrets about his work on behalf of Stalin morphed into an apocalyptic fear of communism. Never mind that it was communist cash which first made Fred a millionaire back in the 30s. Now he became obsessed with searching out and destroying any trace of communism in the U.S., and he became a founding member of the extremist John Birch Society. Fred wrote pamphlets with titles like A Businessman Looks at Communism, claiming that social benefit programs like welfare were part of a nefarious government plot to lure black people to urban environments where they would hunt and kill wealthy whites. As the years went on, Fred became fanatically opposed to taxation, convinced it was all part of a scheme to separate people like him, who had worked hard to earn their fortunes, from the greedy fingers of those who were too lazy to achieve their own success. In some ways, it was the culmination of Fred's decades-old grievance with the oil companies, who had, in Fred's mind, colluded with the government to shut him out of the opportunities that were rightfully his. Government and its favorite elites, he seemed to believe, would always gang up on people like Fred, free thinkers with big ideas. As a result, Fred reasoned, it was incumbent upon all free thinkers to starve the government of its resources, to oppose any and all laws bearing even the faintest whiff of collectivism. By now, of course, Fred himself was by any measure a charter member of the capitalist elite, and the John Birch Society was actively advocating for policies that would make it virtually impossible for poor people, as Fred had once been, to escape the poverty he was now convinced was being exploited to foment a race war. But the warped nature of Fred's logic was plainly lost on him. He was too busy hoarding his wealth, and his commitment to bestowing it only upon those he deemed worthy extended to his own family. As he began to prepare in earnest for the transition of his estate, he made a fateful choice. His four sons would receive their inheritance in two batches. The first would be divided equally between them, while the second would be withheld until Fred's death and then dispersed proportionally, based on his perception of the boy's merit. Yet again, Freddie and Charles's reactions to their father's beliefs were diametrically opposed. Charles joined Fred in the John Birch Society, and together they helped fund an arch-conservative organization called the Freedom School, which supported such causes as reducing the Bill of Rights to a single sentence, the right to own property. Before long, Fred put Charles in charge of the family business. Far away in New York, Freddie immersed himself in the welcome academic redoubt of the Hackley School in Terrytown, studying art and writing plays. Little by little, the trials of his childhood in Wichita began to fade. And as he approached graduation and adulthood 
there was the promise of self-determination at last. Enabled by the inheritance, his father had promised him and his brothers in a letter, which read in part, quote, When you are 21, you will receive what now seems like a large sum of money. It will be yours to do with what you will. It may be a blessing or a curse. Whispers about Freddie's sexuality continued to permeate polite society in Wichita throughout Freddie's teenage years and into his 20s. But by the late 60s, Freddie had put some serious distance between himself and the innuendos and cattle fields of Kansas. After graduating from Harvard and serving in the U.S. Navy, Freddie went to the Yale School of Drama, and then, having received the first batch of his inheritance, as promised in the letter, Freddie moved to Greenwich Village in Manhattan. Upon arrival, Freddie sent a note to fellow Harvard and Navy alum John Mason Brown, the theater critic, who for many years wrote a column in the Saturday Review called Seeing Things. Famously discerning in his taste, Brown is as well known for his theatrical writing as for his condemnation of comic books as, quote, the marijuana of the nursery, the bane of the bassinet, the horror of the house, the curse of the kids, and a threat to the future. It's not hard to imagine that John Mason Brown's taste and erudition reminded Freddie of the time he spent with his mother. Freddie, of course, would go on to fill his own house with classical paintings and sculptures. And it's possible that in his youth, he saw Brown as a kindred spirit. In his letter to Brown, he wrote about his dreams of becoming a playwright. These must have been hopeful days for Freddie, his wallet fat with the spoils of his father's tyranny, yet free at last to deploy them in service of his own vision of a more perfect world. But then, one afternoon in the mid-60s, Freddie returned to his apartment to find it occupied. The trespassers were his brother Charles and one of Charles's friends, who had bribed the building manager to let them into the apartment so they could snoop around for evidence to confirm their suspicions about Freddie's homosexuality. Soon after, Charles called the other three brothers, claiming to have found damning proof in the apartment of what he viewed as Freddie's moral failings. The three brothers called a meeting with Freddie, where they accused him of behavior that could embarrass the family business, and Charles ordered Freddie to surrender his shares in the company. If he refused, Charles threatened to reveal Freddie's secrets to Fred Sr., who would surely revoke Freddie's shares himself. When Freddie tried to protest, Charles shouted him down, until Freddie finally walked out of the meeting. Charles has since denied this blackmail attempt ever happened, but the rift between Fred Sr. and his eldest son was real. Other family members acknowledge that Fred never understood why Freddie didn't want to be more like him. Fred was mystified by his son's creative interests, and over the years, his confusion hardened into outright resentment. One story has it that Fred Sr. never forgave Freddie for an unpaid debt of $700. And Charles later claimed, in court, that Freddie was a thief and, quote, a person who was amoral and not capable of true feelings towards other people. In 1967, 
Fred Sr. began having heart palpitations before a duck hunting trip, but he insisted on heading out into the blinds anyway. His aim was erratic that day, until finally he spied a lone duck flying low across the horizon. Fred shot it out of the sky, turned to his companions, and shouted, boy, what a magnificent shot, and promptly dropped dead. When his will was unsealed, Freddy had been written out. But in spite of the snub, Freddy still had hundreds of millions of dollars to his name. In later years, as Charles and David fought to consolidate control over Coke Industries, eventually seizing ownership of 80% of the company, Freddie and William brought lawsuits against their brothers, claiming that Charles and David had lied to them about the true value of their father's holdings. After one of the lawsuits failed, Charles retaliated against his brothers by withholding details about their mother's funeral when she died, and Freddie didn't make it in time for the burial. Freddie, who'd spent such priceless hours with Mary in retreat from the roiling brinksmanship of his father and brothers, was heartbroken. But Charles didn't stop there. When Mary's will was unsealed, William and Freddie discovered a provision added shortly before her death, which stipulated that any of her sons involved in legal action against the others would forego their inheritance at the time of her passing. Freddie and William came to believe that Charles and David had taken advantage of their mother's weakened mental state to make changes to the will at the last minute. Either way, the impact was undeniable. Yet again, Freddie was cut out. And if you're hearing all this, and you're waiting for the moment when Freddie Koch throws down his butter knife and proclaims that he, as the eldest son, deserves to be considered, that moment never comes. Though he later reconciled with David, Freddie never spoke to Charles again. But here's what he did instead. Freddie Koch spent the rest of his life bestowing his wealth on the preservation of art and cultural artifacts which might otherwise have been lost. Today, David isn't the only Koch brother with his name on a venerated cultural institution. Yale's library has a Frederick R. Koch collection, which contains preserved manuscripts from composers like Claude Debussy, Igor Stravinsky, and Richard Wagner, not to mention authors ranging from Alexandre Dumas to Henry James to Noel Coward. Freddie donated original proofs of Marcel Proust's Remembrance of Things Past and original manuscripts by Tennessee Williams. Freddie's collection of Victorian art is said to have been too large for multiple warehouses to contain. Freddie died in 2020, and his obituary in the New York Times opens with a story about him standing side by side with the Queen of England at the grand opening of a $2.8 million theater at the Royal Shakespeare Company. Freddie beams as the Queen thanks the generous benefactor who underwrote the project, without revealing that it's the smiling American standing to her right in a pinstripe suit. Across five decades, and according to family records, over 50,000 acquisitions and donations, Freddie often kept his role in cultural projects anonymous, so the full extent of his contributions to the preservation of the world's cultural legacy isn't fully known. In an interview after his death, Freddie's assistant revealed that Freddie had left his entire fortune to a newly created foundation for the study of literature, history, and the arts. And if we line up Freddie's life alongside that of his brothers, his legacy can be viewed as a welcome counter to the craven savagery 
of theirs. Under Charles's leadership, Coke Industries ranks alongside the likes of ExxonMobil among the top polluters of American air, water, and climate. In 1996, one of their pipelines exploded, killing a pair of teenagers named Daniel Smalley and Jason Stone. Residents of the Texas town where it happened told reporters they'd repeatedly complained about gas leaks prior to the explosion, but the Cokes had done nothing to address the problem. Instead, the brothers leveraged their fortunes to help elect George W. Bush to the White House and then consulted on anti-regulatory initiatives, which enabled them to branch into chemical fracking that threatens the country's clean water supply. Some people give David Koch, who also died in 2020, a bit of a pass. He didn't oversee day-to-day operations at Koch Industries, and he donated millions to arts organizations and cancer research. But there are indications that while some of his philanthropy was genuine, much of it was engineered to curry public favor and to distract attention from the Koch's more nefarious activities. Koch Industries is now over 4,000 times as profitable as it was in the 60s when Charles took over. And as their personal fortunes stretched into the billions following their consolidation of power, Charles and David spent years orchestrating a shadowy network of sham think tanks and smokescreen foundations to shield enormous caches of wealth from what they view as the rapacious reach of the IRS. Instead of paying their fair share in taxes, they used their money to buy influence from politicians who make laws protecting the Koch's ability to continue enriching themselves from business interests that threaten the long-term viability of human life on planet Earth. In doing so, Charles and David Koch created a blueprint for fellow billionaires, hell-bent on deploying their fortunes in service of reshaping the government to suit their interests. In recent years, fellow robber barons like Robert and Rebecca Mercer, Liz and Dick Uline, and the Scaife family have taken up the Koch cause, spending millions to block federal regulations designed to support public health, fight financial corruption, and stave off environmental catastrophe. As for William Koch, his name is less frequently invoked in debates about the corrosive power of the Koch family, and it should be noted that he claims to have stuck up for Freddie in the midst of Charles's blackmail attempt. But William also went on to start a multi-billion dollar oil and energy conglomerate of his own, which has also been cited for various environmental violations. Perhaps most notoriously, William spent years attempting to block the construction of a wind power facility off the coast of Massachusetts because he was concerned it would ruin the view from his beach house. When I compare Freddie's story to all of that, I feel something stir inside me. The same part of me that swelled with hope at Connor Roy's glimmer of humanity. I am the eldest son. I must be considered, I need to be taken into account. I want to believe that it's possible to sow new roots in a family tree like the Cokes, no matter how deep the rot. So, is Freddie Koch's story a redemption narrative? Because it's tempting to look at his life and see a traumatized gay kid who was emotionally abused by a tyrannical father, to see an artistic soul who, rather than spending years consumed by a quest for vengeance, rebelled against his family's role in polluting the future by fighting to preserve the beauty of the past. To see a man who, in spite of his brother's vicious attempts to slander and stab him in the back, still found a way to be considered, to be taken into account. 
In Freddy Coke, it's tempting to see a battered but unbroken spirit with which to empathize, and perhaps even to emulate. And yet, there are other elements of Freddy's story that would seem to give the lie to all that. There is Daniel Shulman's account of Freddy's reputation for getting angry at the support staff of his extravagant homes for minor infractions like adding too much postage to letters. And the story about how back in the 1980s, Freddy planned to open a museum in London to display his collection, but got into an aesthetic dispute with the British cultural authorities and threatened to take his business elsewhere. Which makes it seem like, for Freddy, the project was less motivated by the desire to create a space for the public to enjoy priceless 19th century art, but rather about catering to the tastes and desires of the rich man who hoarded all that art for himself. And then there's the fact that Freddy always denied that he was gay. He reportedly lived alone until his death, and when Daniel Shulman brought up Charles's alleged blackmail attempt, Freddie's response was jarring. He said, quote, Charles's homosexual blackmail to get control of my shares did not succeed for the simple reason that I am not homosexual. There's something haunting about that comment. To me, Freddie comes across as unconcerned about the fact that Charles was attempting to perpetrate blackmail, which happens to be a federal crime, or the fact that Charles evidently doesn't think his own spoon is shiny enough and is trying to swindle Freddie out of his birthright. Instead, it seems, Freddie's objection is tactical. Implicit in his logic is an endorsement of blackmail as a technique for consolidating wealth and power, but only if you win. Blackmail, in fact, is the word one historian used to describe Freddie's gambit with the British cultural authorities back in the 80s. And while Freddie's commitment to preserving exquisite cultural artifacts is admirable, it's hardly revolutionary to lock them away for access only at the discretion of a mercurial multimillionaire. And finally, there's the question of whether it's even reasonable to expect the scions of American empire to somehow transcend the curse of their forebears. Perhaps if there's any real lesson to be learned from the turbulent history of House Coke, it's woven into another anecdote in Daniel Shulman's Vanity Fair piece, where Freddie makes this passing comment about the difficulty of managing his various real estate holdings. Quote, I found that you don't own the houses. The houses own you. Or maybe it's best expressed by another apocryphal story about Freddie, one he denied, but which is cited in both Shulman's piece as well as Freddie's New York Times obituary. It goes like this. One day, Freddie Koch and a friend were crossing Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, and Freddie happened to look down and notice a nickel embedded in the pavement in the middle of the street. Seemingly mesmerized, Freddie's friend watched in horror as Freddie took out his keys, knelt down, and began chipping away at the edges of the nickel, even as cars were flying through the intersection, swerving to avoid him. Finally, Freddie successfully freed the coin from the road and held it aloft. He gazed at it for a moment and then murmured, I got it. Later, Freddie's friend chastised him for endangering his safety in the name of adding five cents to his estate. According to the friend's account, Freddie laughed at this and envisioned a headline announcing his demise. The headline read, The Fatal Nickel.
Family Ghosts is hosted, produced, written, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. My version of Freddie Koch's story is assembled from original reporting by Jane Mayer, Daniel Shulman, Brian O'Reilly, Patty DeLosa, and Catherine Q. Celie. For a list of sources, please check the show notes for this episode. Our show art is by Teddy Blanks, and our theme music is by Louis Guerra. Family Ghosts is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Kindred Spirits, our community of supporters on Patreon. For just $5 a month, Kindred Spirits get all our episodes ad-free, and they also get exclusive access to bonus content that's not available anywhere else. Our show wouldn't be possible without the Kindred Spirits. So if you have a few nickels to spare, please consider joining them today at patreon.com slash familyghosts. And if you don't have the means, no worries. Thank you for listening. And please consider supporting the show for free by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. It will take 30 seconds of your life, and it will make a huge difference in the life of family ghosts. Thank you for listening, Ghost Family. We'll be back in two weeks with an all-new episode right here on Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted.